from the west side of Charlotte, North Carolina. This is Here for Good. Here for Good! Here for Good! A collection of stories and conversations with the kinfolk of QC Family Tree. 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 Listen in as we seek to awaken the popular imagination to new possibilities of abundance and spark social action for the common good. I'm one of the kinfolk. My name is Helms Gerald. Here we are in our 10th episode. We'll be talking about possibilitarian, incarnational practitioners manifesting abundance, being good for the common. Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front by Wendell Berry. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay, want more, of everything ready-made, be afraid to know your neighbors and to die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance, for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest, that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carry on. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign. To mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection.
sad song on the track, yeah. Tell me love got your back, see. All right, all right, all right, all right. Reverend Ayana Johnson Watkins serves as the director of the MBA Incubate Initiative. In this role, she seeks out and supports the development of new health and social service ministries, as well as the disciple social entrepreneurs who are starting them. Ayana's work centers around giving shape to the incubator initiative by identifying and encouraging new ministry projects, connecting ministry entrepreneurs to resources and information, and engaging the church and community around new ways of serving our neighbors. Ayana has had the privilege of serving two Disciples of Christ churches thus far, Park Manor Christian Church as youth pastor and Family of Hope Christian Church as church planter, both in the Chicago area. For five years, she was the Director of Community Life at Chicago Theological Seminary, a United Church of Christ seminary. Ayana has also been an active social worker, serving as a community organizer, a counselor for at-risk youth and mentally ill adults, and an advocate for public aid clients. She has written articles for multiple disciples publications, as well as the Christian Century magazine, and she has led and facilitated conferences and workshops on leadership, mentoring communities, domestic violence, and youth development. She earned her BA in sociology from Yale University before going on to complete both the Master of Divinity and the Master of Arts in Social Service Administration at the University of Chicago. She has been ordained minister in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ since 2004. Along with her husband and daughter, she calls Memphis, Tennessee her home. Well, my name is Ayana Johnson-Watkins, and I'm the director of the Incubate Initiative for the National Benevolent Association of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And what that means is that I help to equip and support uh, faith-based entrepreneurs to start new health and social service uh, ministries, organizations, programs, um, sometimes their products like curricula, but that's my work, and I do it from Memphis. I get to work from home, so I do it from Memphis, Tennessee, where I live with my husband and daughter. And Memphis is a new city for me, and actually causes me to think a lot about the common good. Um, because I get to sort of walk into a new environment, discern, ask God, think about what my place is there. You know, how can I bring my gifts to this space um, and help out? Um, and my motivation is the common good. And then underlying that for me is that everybody who's a part of the community has gifts as well as needs. And if the common good is working, we're using our gifts to meet each other's needs. That may not always look perfect or clean. Sometimes it's messy. <laughs> um, sometimes it's silly. Um, sometimes it's not what the experts would advise or, you know, would have thought of, of this on their own. But. I think that's okay. I think when we come together and we work and we do our best with what we have, um, that beautiful things grow. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing that in Memphis. Well, I thought about you specifically because I feel like you get to be exposed to a lot of different ways in which abundant community or neighborhood economics are taking place in the flesh whether it be through your partnerships with your work or also it seems like just the way in which you live, the people that you interact with are these people who are incarnational practitioners. I think about Roz. I want you to tell us a little bit about Roz, but um, this you seem to be drawn to people who don't just think about 
faith and belief, but live it out. And so that's why I wanted to ask you to be a part of the podcast because I want you to tell people about all the others that you know that are living out um, this idea of abundance or living out alternatives to the empire. Rosalind Nichols is both a participant in the Incubate um, program and she's my pastor. I cannot even remember which one of those two things came first uh, anymore. Uh, But uh, she is the pastor of a church called Freedom's Chapel Christian Church. And she's also an entrepreneur who started several years ago a program called A More Excellent Way. Um, which focused on healing the pain of domestic violence, um, giving people exposure to what domestic violence can look like among their own friends, families, and congregations, and especially for spiritual leaders, how they can encourage healthy relationships and not unwittingly support violence in the home. Um, Sometimes our sacred texts and the way that we use them and speak about them and relationships can unknowingly put people in tough situations where they feel like if they quit a relationship, then they've quit on God or they've um, let down um, their vow to God, even when sometimes their their lives and their souls are in danger. And so her work with a more excellent way, which is having to restart now, had to go on hiatus so she could build a church, but she is working on restart now, um, is to help people get into that place. I mean, her theory is that, just like we're talking about with the common good, every body, but also every institution has gifts and roles that it can play in a community. And her feeling is that the church is one of the few places that can teach what a healthy relationship looks like with authority, what love looks like, what it is, what it sounds like, what it feels like at home, what it means between two people, what it means in the midst of a family. And can do that with authority. If we are one of, if we as a church are one of the places where you can learn that, then it's our responsibility to share that. There are a lot of agencies out there helping to get people out of damaging relationships, um, and she supports their work. She's very clear that what she is called to do is not as much the crisis intervention and more the work of prevention and re-education, um, so that we equip people with the tools they have, already, with the tools they need to go into relationships saying, this one is right, and this one may not be right for me. Just really powerful work. She's based here in Memphis. Um, and so we're looking forward to um, the reincarnation, if you will, of that ministry. Um, but in the meantime, she continues to just model that through her ministry at church and build out ways in which people can model healthy relationships and be good to one another. Uh, We also have Elaine Sanford here in Memphis doing a work called Her Faith Ministries. And she's working with um, women and children who are in economic primarily need. Now, oftentimes those economic needs parlay out into other kinds of needs, medical needs, um, emotional needs, parenting needs, um, and, and they often are just attached to a web of things that, that the person is dealing with. And so she tries to address those situations in a holistic way. She works with the women um, to build them up from the inside so that they begin to see what they're capable of. I mean, speaking of abundance, it's just she trusts. I mean, that's why it's called her faith ministries. She trusts intrinsically that what each woman needs is already inside of her, and her job is to help the woman see it in herself and to build on what she has. And then they can come alongside with other resources for what she, whatever she may not have. But the key is that it builds on her own faith. And through that faith, she can build herself, she can build her family, she can make a home for herself. 
um, and it's really a beautiful um, ministry. It started in a fun way for me to tell <laughs> uh, as a story because also it leads in this area of abundance. Uh, Elaine and her, her husband have adult children and she had um, a house that she was preparing to sell and she was thinking that she would probably sell it to one of her children and I hope I'm telling this story right but I'm sure Elaine will come on after me and tell, tell the story correctly. <laughs> but the gist is she was planning to sell it to one of her children. She was in the process of doing that and um, when she uh, ran into a young woman who was living in her car with her children and um, she knew that her church, which is a large urban church here, uh, Disciples Church here in Memphis, um, could probably help them with some emergency food and that type of thing. Um, but she didn't know where this woman was going to get any long-term help that would actually help her stop living in her car. And she was talking to her family about it. And her son said, well, you have a house. <laughs> and she was just <laughs> like, uh, I guess I do. <laughs> Somebody, I met a person who needs a house and I have a house. Um, and that was the first house um, that became part of the Her Faith Ministries. And now they have, gosh, I want to say 11 houses. They have somewhere between five and 10 active houses um, that they are housing families in um, who, for people who were living in their cars, for people who have been evicted suddenly from their apartment buildings, which were of course being turned into condos. And you know, this is a story you're familiar with. She found that as she sort of turned her, turned her house into one place for this ministry, other houses just started coming to her. People were willing to sell them sell her their house for this work um, and say, you know, if you're going to house people who need shelter, you can have my house or you can, we'll do a, you know, 10 year lease for a dollar a year or something mm -hmm. to that effect. And then we'll talk about it 10 years down the road. Wow. Um, and that's how she has procured all this housing for her people. And this housing is turning people's lives around. Um, one beautiful story I got to hear and really see um, was a woman who had never had her own place before, but she was in one of the ministry houses. And the way the ministry houses work is at first, her faith ministries covers all the expenses and the repair and the maintenance. But then as time goes on and your life gets a little better and your infrastructure gets a little stronger, you take on more and more responsibilities of the house. So we had a young woman who was working her way through the program and Elaine got to the house one day and the woman had planted rose bushes and she was growing roses outside her home and it was just so beautiful like she had never had a garden never had a yard never had anything and finally now she was beginning to take enough ownership of the house to say you know what i'm going to plant some rose bushes and rose bushes are not a short-term commitment mm -hmm. <laughs> like <laughs> that's for real like you have to really invest in roses um and so we saw that as symbolic of her planting herself um, and beginning to feel rooted and grounded where she was. Mm. Um, and those are just the ones in Memphis. We have several others across the country. And um, yeah, I could tell these stories all day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm wondering for you, how do you know when you know? How do you know when an organization or a person is living in abundance? Because you have the job of not necessarily like bedding ministries. I mean, it's not like you're sitting out there with a radar or something, but at the same time, right. you do have this discernment process. And I'm wondering, you know, what are the characteristics that you look for? Or um, what is it that you intuitively are kind of looking or watching for 
that lets you know this is it. This is an incarnational ministry. This is an organization or a person who is living out abundance. I do a workshop with one of my um, ministry partners in the Wire Church, Terrell McTire, and it's called Do You Want to Start a Church or a Nonprofit? And the title is actually meant to call you into a place of discernment and to begin to think about, you want to start something, what is it, and what will it take? And one of the exercises we do in that workshop um, ends up being called the power of why. And for us, that's because Sorel and I believe, and along with several other, you know, modern philosophers, that the question why, when you're thinking about what you want to do, is the most important question for you to start with. And so when I'm listening to people with ideas and I'm hearing the projects that they're describing to me that they have envisioned, um, I always listen for the why. Why are you doing this? Are you? And, and I hear a lot of things. And so I'm listening for the people whose why is centered in a sense of abundance. For example, I may hear someone who says, well, I want to start this um, ministry in our church because I think it could help bring people back to the church and we are having trouble paying our bills and if we had more people in the church they could help us pay our bills and i think that's great but it's not it's not the little piece that i'm listening for because it's already it's it's threaded through with scarcity there may not be enough we got to get more people in here so that there will be enough um so i have to i may hear that but i have to keep listening deeper and keep pushing them and saying no tell me why why does this really matter and the ones that stand out are always the ones who say well we have this and if people just knew or there's this problem in our community but we have the answers we need or we have the space for these young people to hang out after school or we have we have we have the sense of like it's here we just have to match the pieces together it's just that the people don't know what's available and we need to open ourselves up to what's possible um, that's when I know um, that we got a winner. <laughs> um, because people who can see abundance when there's nothing yet to see um, are the ones who are going to be able to push past all the obstacles and get through the hard times. Um, because those are the things that, that's, that's what can really carry you, is a real strong why. Why do this? Because we have what we need. We just need to bring the things together so that they can work together. Mm-hmm. So what made you this way? How did you get into being in a way that you could even have this within your own framework? I could tell you a silly story. Would you be up for that? Yeah. So I grew up, for the most part, with my mom and my little brother. My parents have been divorced since I was really young. But um, we continue to have summer visits with my dad. My dad remarried and remarried into a very large, intentional community. So when we visit my dad, we live in a house with two other families that also had kids. And so our lives, as you might imagine, were very regimented <laughs> in the summers. Everybody had roles and responsibilities. Everybody had things to do so that the house could run effectively. Um, and so one morning, it was my family's turn to provide breakfast, and it was my turn within the family to make breakfast. I was 11 years old. And I did not have a lot of experience cooking, but I could, you know, boil water. So they gave me oatmeal. <laughs> I mean, what do you have to do but boil water and put the oatmeal in it, right? Right. So I think what happened was, so we had to feed 15 people in the house, so that's a lot of oatmeal. But I think what happened in my brain was that I was using the cup measurement 
for the finished oatmeal where I should have been using the cup measurement for the dry oats. <laughs> so we ended up with this giant stock pot, half the size of my body, full of oatmeal. <laughs> so of course, all 15 of us ate, and there was still probably two thirds of a pot of oatmeal left. <laughs> so my brothers and I got out our little red wagon, and our house was close to a few other houses that were part of the same intentional community. This was a religious community. And uh, so we pulled our little wagon of oatmeal over to um, a house where they also had some little kids I like to play with. And we pulled it over there. And thank goodness they hadn't gotten up yet. And they hadn't had breakfast. So they all had breakfast out of our pot of oatmeal. And so that it, so that's what I think of when you say abundance. Yes. <laughs> very early experience. So even with like tons of kids around, tons of, I think there were like nine kids, and six adults or something in the house we were in. And then there were 20, 21 people in the house that we went to. You know, all the houses in this community were like this. There was just always enough. Mm-hmm. Um, there was never this sense that um, we weren't going to make it, um, that things were tight or... Not even that you couldn't have seconds. I mean, you know, if you think about a house with 15 people in it, you can sort of take for granted, well, no one's getting seconds. <laughs> but we always had seconds. And, um, you know, it was just always enough. And even there were enough parents, right? You know, um, I had my parents, but then I got bonus parents um, and trusted adults in my life that I could talk to. And I had that at my dad's house, and I also had it through my church family back at my mom's house, even without a dad, one parent. You know, it, you would think it could feel a little lonely. I had multiple parents, lots of dads, lots of grandparents. Um, so I always felt like I had enough. And when I was growing up, I thought, I want to be a social worker so that I can help people have what I had. Family, you know, love, food. Hmm. I like that. Um, so what was I going to ask you? Oh, um, we're not going to call it secular culture. We're just going to call it not churchiness. Where... <laughs> Where are the non-churchy places that you're witnessing abundance or neighborliness that you've seen? I could probably start on my block. Um, so as I told you, I just moved to Memphis a few years ago. We are living in the first house I've ever owned. I've never owned a house. My husband had owned, had owned property before, but I had not. So it's our first house, just getting everything under control. Almost immediately, our neighbors started to come by one of them said, gave the best description that I still think applies to all of our neighbors, which is, we're super nosy, but in the best possible way. <laughs> That's just who they are. Um, and they just look out for us. They, you know, anything from if our alarm is going off to, you know, if something weird, I mean, one house on the block had water coming down the driveway, and so they called the authorities to come over and take care of it because they actually knew that the homeowners were out on vacation because they are that close. Before we moved into our house at, in December, but we closed on the house in October. And so we had not moved in on Halloween, and Halloween is a very big deal on our street. And so our next door neighbor went over and unscrewed our porch light so that we would not have <laughs> kids and or eggs and or toilet paper all over our house that we had not even yet moved into. Um, just, you know, little things like that. We never have to worry about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, on our block, there's just a lot of a lot of neighborliness in the most um, explicit way here. But there are other places, right? Non-churchy places. I'm a kind of a churchy person, so I have a lot of church environments in my life. 
Oh. But even in pop culture or in books or TV? I love um, Chimamanda Adichie's TED Talk about the power, the danger of a single story. Um, I think that's revolutionized a lot of the ways that people talk. Same thing with Brene Brown's The Power of Vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, just really changed the way people think about what it means to look at another person and give them the benefit of being a human with a whole story, with a whole life, with abilities and challenges and pains and joys and letting them be a whole person. Mm-hmm. It's going to sound goofy, but cooking classes, I think, are places <laughs> where I find almost instant community because when you're sitting there with a knife trying not to kill yourself and the person next to you is sitting there with a knife trying not to kill yourself, you become fast friends. <laughs> so, that's good times. Um, well, what you're talking about so far as the neighbors and this um, and the danger of the single story and the Brene Brown vulnerability kind of reminds me of some stories that have come up. I mean, we've known them. They've been there all along. But there are stories recently that are coming up about people calling the police officers when it's unnecessary. And I went to a workshop not too long ago where we were trying, we were, it's like a don't call the cops workshop and let's, let's brainstorm, let's put out some scenarios, let's talk about what the options are, let's think about how we can not call the police officers. This is not to say that police officers are innately terrible creatures, but for one, we have what we need and we don't have to call them. Um, and for two, it, it risks crisis or a threat to safety to call the police officers often. And so we were having that conversation. Greg's in a cohort with Walter Brueggemann, Peter Block, and John McKnight right now. And they had a, another similar conversation about neighborly um, mutual covenants or neighborhood covenants. Hey. And so the idea was not like an HOA where you have to let, you know, it's not about regulations and rules and making sure your grass is mowed. But the idea was like, if I'm in trouble, we have a plan and we're going to keep each other safe. Uh, We've had those conversations a lot here recently and we even brought it up today in pottery class. It's like, okay, so there have been a couple situations lately where I have felt uneasy because either Greg's been gone or it's just something that feels a little odd and off. But, you know, what what should be my go-to in those moments? The go-to is never to call some stranger to come and to assist, but in or, but instead to kind of call the person next door who knows me well and can help out. So we had this lady who was oddly just odd. And Greg was out of town. And I had answered the door and gave her food or whatever, but she was just hanging out on the porch. And that was fine, except for I needed to get in the shower, kind of get ready for my day. And I was fine with her being on the porch, but I'm by myself. And so anyway, I just called, I just texted next door and not nextdoor.com, the next door neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And texted another person, right, because nextdoor.com is like the opposite of what we're talking about. But um, anyway, so I just texted them and said, hey, this is not an alarm. Don't be worried. But there's somebody on my front porch. Can you just kind of help keep an eye? And so later I had gotten ready and every it, they had texted me back and checked in. And one of the neighbors came over eventually after I had gotten ready. I was getting ready to leave. And the other thing that came up about this was that he kind of was checking in on me because he has a loud scooter, like a Vespa type thing. He woke her up. She was sleeping on the front porch. He woke her up when he came to check. 
And it was good timing because it was kind of time for me to leave. And so I kind of needed to wake her up anyway. So we have this exchange and she starts to walk on her way and the neighbor goes off. Well, another really nice and close neighbor was sitting at the bus stop in our front yard. And he was talking to me and said, oh, she doesn't look like she's stable enough to walk on her own. I'm going to just walk up to the corner and make sure she doesn't stumble out into the street. So he did that. Well, then because he's caregiving for me, he's caregiving for her, then it actually heightened my sense of caregiving for her. So then I got in the car and felt like, you know what, I'm going next door to the Urban Ministry Center on my way to this meeting. Why don't I just take her with me? And so his acknowledgement of care and not alarm made me say, oh, okay, I can, I can go another step of caring. My radar isn't off. I don't have to have my eyebrow raised and be skeptical, but instead I can offer her care. And so um, she, you know, she got in the car, I drove to Urban Ministry, and then while she was in the car, she's still a stranger, I'm still by myself, Greg's still out of town, nobody knows that she's in my car. And so I just called a friend while I was on the way to Urban Ministry and was just like, hey, I'm just calling to talk to you. I have a friend here. No, you've not met her. I just met her 10 seconds ago. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And so this idea of neighbors taking care of each other and also seeing within one another and also seeing within whoever the stranger might be, that they're not altogether that strange is a practice of abundance that made me, that you made me think of as you were sharing. No, I mean, there's so many good examples of that. I mean, even just silly, not silly, but you know, sort of a lighthearted thing. My neighbor across the street saw that someone parked in front of my house and was just sitting there. The car was on, the car was running, but they were just sitting there. And, um, so she called me to see if I knew them. Again, she could have called the police because she didn't know them. And they were parked on the street and went, like, as I noted, up to the close-knit street. <laughs> so she knew she didn't know who they were. Um, but she called me and said, you know, there's some folks sitting outside your house. Are they friends of yours? Do you know them? I said, no, but thanks for letting me know. I'll keep an eye out, see if anything looks weird. Eventually, there's a neighborhood security um, guy that sort of drives around and he checked on them and it was basically some teenagers in the car finding a place to make out. I mean, <laughs> needed some privacy. And <laughs> um, so, you know, everything, basically everything that is strange is not a threat. Mm -hmm. Sometimes things you don't recognize or things um, that you haven't seen before are just, you know, another chunk of life that has not previously intersected your life that has currently come along. Um, and while I think you do have to make sure to, you know, take care of yourself the way you did, you put, you you invited a stranger into your car, but then you also made sure that someone knew that you were in the car with someone that you had just met. Mm -hmm. Again, just making sure that you have some protections around you. You call your neighbor, you know, all those things. I mean, one of the stories you're referencing happened at Yale, and I went to Yale, uh, so there was an undergrad while I can't say anything like that happened to me, I totally get it. I mean, people were of color were often called on, on their IDs. You know, let me see your school ID. Um, it happened when I was in the University of Chicago as well, same thing. So those are upsetting circumstances <clears throat> and just so very, very avo avoidable. 
But I think also we can do better in giving each other, like you said, alternatives to making the worst out of everything. Like Mm -hmm. we can give each other alternatives for what we could do and how we treat our neighbors, even the ones who are strangers. Mm -hmm. I think too, there's something to be said for the way in which neighborhood is designed. Cause like you can, your neighbor can see that person out on the street and also sees you enough to be able to have those relationships. And so there's something about the way in which the neighborhood is designed that makes or breaks those types of relationships. Not to say that they're not possible if you, um, if everybody has a front facing garage and they just drive straight in and, you know, don't have a front porch or something like that. But at the same time, I think it makes it a little bit harder. We live directly across the street from a humongous gravel lot. And so there's not a, we don't have an across the street neighbor. The closest one is across that lot and the lot got fenced about a year ago. And so that gravel space used to be a thoroughfare for how we got to our neighbor's house, hollering across the way. And even, it's just a chain link fence, but something visual about the chain link makes it harder to even just holler because you can't quite see what's going on or there's something, there's often cars or whatever. So um, the way in which our space is designed makes it now trickier for us to be in that kind of neighborly covenant with one another. And so we have to be really creative about the ways in which we do so. So we created a cut to get around the parking lot, a shortcut for those who don't speak (laughs) family tree (laughs) language. We created a walking path over to the other house and we made it, but we made it a true path so that it seems like it's official. Like this is meant to be here and this is something we use often. And we have to make more of an effort to go over and around because we don't have something like as close by. It started to make us brainstorm when we were talking about the, do you call it cops or not? Did we need to put some kind of like communal bell or communal light or something that if someone needed to ring the bell, they could? I mean, now we have technology. So most everyone has some form of cell phone or Wi-Fi and they can get onto us. They can get to us by Facebook or by texting. But at the same time, um, I think we might install a bell just because I think it would be helpful. Of course, now now that I think about that, all the kids will just ring it whenever they <laughs> feel like it. It's hard to resist the temptation of a bell <laughs> yeah. in your front yard. I mean, there's enough attractive things in your front yard. <laughs> tires, yeah, there's a lot of things. Well, we have a small little bell that we put out. I read this story about this community that had a, a village bell. And when anybody had any good news, they would ring the bell. And then everybody in the whole village would kind of like sing a song or say hooray or whatever. And so we have a bell out there, but I don't think anybody really understands what it's for. So it gets rung for just walking by. (laughs) 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 Which I guess is good enough. (laughs) That would probably be probably sufficient. (laughs) So are there other places or people who are living the way of abundance or neighborliness that you want to tell me about? I know it's not functioning perfectly, but I am happy to see what's going on with the Poor People's Campaign. I'm happy to see the original sentiment revived. Um, I'm happy to see us putting our hearts and minds in the place of poverty and what we can do to get rid of it, how we can take care of one another, how we can show up for one another. Um, So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the Poor People's Campaign and the movement around that. Mm -hmm. I'm thankful... um, 
for um, the organizing movement I see here in Memphis right now. Um, and um, we have an interface group that we're pulling together um, that is partly um, faith communities, but also community organizations, unions, and so forth that are coming together to see what we can do to make Memphis a better place to live. That is just giving me life. I am excited um, to see what's going on with some of our partners who are just trying new things in the world. Uh, so Urban Mission Community Partners in Pomona, California, which is Southern California, had just had an open house for their, their community wellness center. And they've partnered with nursing students at a nearby college to provide um, health clinic level services um, for folks who need it in the community. And as well as regular fitness classes, um, and they have a community garden as well. This grew out of a program that started as a weekly meal and just kept expanding based on what people said they were, of course, what gifts were in the community and what people said they needed. And so I've just been really encouraged to see what's going on there. And even as, I mean, they've had a big vision, Urban Mission Community Partners has a big vision for um, a, a re-entry program and support services for those coming out of incarceration, um, for wellness in the community, for leadership coaching um, and life coaching. Um, and it's big and they've had to put some things down, make something smaller, but out of that, some things that they thought were just small have grown to this beautiful thing um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, they have an art program called Inside Out, where formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated folks are creating this beautiful art. Um, Urban Mission Community Partners helps supply the art supplies, is able to take them into the prisons, um, and then all this beautiful art is produced, and then they have regular galleries and shows where they can show the art, sell the art, and the proceeds go back into the program and help provide more art supplies. And the way that's giving life to folks, especially those who are still on the inside, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And the art that comes out of their hearts and out of their memories and out of their experiences is just so revealing and real. It's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing to witness. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're turning, you know, that's something that I'm sure started a little small and then it just exploded into this, its own thing. <laughs> Um, so I've been excited to see them um, expanding their ministry in some places and, like I said, you're pulling it back in some places, which I think is an important part, too. Abundance doesn't mean you have to do all the things that you can imagine. It just means all the things are possible to a particular degree. And your job <laughs> is to figure out which river, which stream you're going to follow. Ooh, um, that's tricky for so me. figuring that out. <laughs> That's very tricky for me. I always have so many ideas and I feel burdened by the ideas to make them happen. Right. You want to do all the things, but all the things are not for you. Some of the things are for sharing. Some of the things are for the back burner for now. Some of the things are for a different community or a different time. Yeah. Um, When I was talking with Angela for the podcast, um, Mm -hmm. we were talking about, I think it was kind of in the realm of creativity and self-care. And she was talking about how the creative person has to go on furlough, basically, to, to, to lay fallow like the garden in the wintertime so that creativity can come again. And that, that those moments of um, resting or waiting or maybe not being creative. And maybe I think we were talking about it like 
I don't know what to create right now. And so I'm just in a space where I'm listening and feeling and trying to, to know when it is that I need to make something or make something happen. But even in this space of, oh no, I've got all these ideas. I know a lot of things that are possible to create, but still I don't know which one, or I, don't, I know I don't have the capacity, or I know I need to renew first. And so these things are here, and I celebrate that, but I also need to take some time to lay fallow or to take moments to rest. Um, and that was really helpful for me. I mean, especially because she saw that rest as a moment of to be honored, like not for just like, if I'm going to take the rest for me to honor it, but she, when she sees that people like people drop off the radar, like creatives that drop off the radar from the public face. And then all of a sudden you're like, where are they? Angela's go-to is to say, oh, you just wait. Like they're coming, they're coming back and they're coming back with something that's going to be even more amazing than what was before because they took this time. And that's something that I don't necessarily think a lot of people have that approach. When they see, they're like, you know, where are they now? They're like, oh, they must have just like lost it or they must be in rehab. Or, and even if they were in rehab, that's like, that's a beautiful and healing moment. Yes. Um, and so that was, you know, yeah. So when she was talking about that and, you know, it just, it, those were words of abundance for me that you don't always have to be producing, producing, producing. And so I think that's helpful to be reminded of. Um, yeah, I'm encouraged by your ministry. I'm encouraged by what's happening at QCFT. I'm encouraged by the retreat space you're creating, like what we were just talking about, the space to lay fallow, giving people a chance to take some time away um, from their regular life to be creative or to rest from, you know, the, the burden of caregiving. Um, even as it is beautiful, it is also burdensome. And the fact that you're making that space um, is its own beautiful ministry, so I love seeing that. So I'm really excited to just bear witness to what you guys are up to, and we'll continue to pray um, for life to continue to be renewed in that space. Mm -hmm. Thank you. family tree families are hitting the road. We're taking folks as close as Cramerton, Salisbury, and Boone, and as far as Folly Beach, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. Our upcoming adventures will include explorations of new places, connection to new people and partners, and learning a lot about history, creation, and each other along the way. Our plans span a lot of miles, and we could use your support. Would you commit to sponsoring a mile for $20? Even better, maybe you could get 20 of your friends to each sponsor a mile for $20. Every little bit helps. Go now to qcfamilytree.org donate and help us get on the road. Hey, 
I've been to Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Madawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tocopilla, Barranquilla, and Padilla. I'm a killer. I've been Thanks for listening to Here for Good. Here for Good. Here for Good. Sponsored by QC Family Tree. 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 Here for Good. I was going to say, I don't want to say it.